0: What's up, fellas? Welcome back to Combos Over Cold Brew with me, your host, Emma Abrahamson. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Dr. Stacey Sims. She's an exercise physiologist and a nutrition scientist, and her main goal is to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. I knew I had to have her on the podcast after I saw her TED Talk many many years ago. It's titled Women are not small men, and it basically talks about especially like in the sports world that a lot of studies are done on men's bodies and not women's bodies and there are distinct differences between the two. And that's basically what her research is all about. She's also published a book called Roar that goes into detail training and nutrition differences between men and women. In this episode, we talk a lot about going through puberty as a female runner. I really wanted to dive into this topic because it's something that's not discussed about at all. Honestly, there's just not enough people talking about this time period and how crucial it is to... Eat well and train during this time period and just also know that your body's going to change and you're gonna make it to the other side if running feels a little bit different. And it's a topic that I'm really passionate about because I don't know, you'll hear all about it in this episode, but I don't wanna talk too much about it beforehand. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a big shout out to today's sponsor, Inside Tracker. Talk about something that has like really helped me deal with, you know, this I feel like the second round of puberty that I'm going through. Inside Tracker helps you understand what's going on inside your body. It goes beyond generic blood work by revealing a more personalized reference range for each person called the optimal zone to assess precisely where your health is optimized and where it's not. I always do the ultimate test, which gives you 46 different biomarkers like magnesium, cortisol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, iron levels, ferritin, vitamin B12, vitamin D, so many different biomarkers that you would most likely have no idea what's going on inside of you. So... Tracker was created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. They analyze your blood, DNA, and your fitness tracking data to help you live healthier longer. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body, which is so important because even in this episode we talk a lot about how everything is so individual, and every person is so different everyone goes through you know different times of puberty everyone needs to eat a little bit differently it's so important to focus on yourself and not get caught up in like fad diets and everything else going on and inside tracker is one way to really get the inside of what's going on with you and what you need to do you know nutrition wise and lifestyle wise moving forward to optimize your blood biomarkers for a limited time take 20% off their top selling ultimate plan if you're in the US or Canada just go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Emma or use code Emma20 for 20% off. That's tracker.com forward slash Emma and code Emma20 for 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Now let's get into today's episode with Dr. Stacey Sims. All right, Dr. Stacey Sims. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I I read your book, I think it, I don't remember when it was, like a year or two ago. And that was the second time I had heard of you actually. I saw your TED talk like many, many years ago. So then I read your book and I was like, I need to have you on the podcast because you're just a well of information. So thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, thanks. I'm excited to chat. Is there but yeah.
0: Um, Well, to give a little like a background on yourself, do you want to just give us a little bit of a rundown of who you are and what you're about?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, So I guess the, the long elevator pitch is I'm a female athlete performance physiologist. So really what that means is my background is in exercise physiology, but specifically in sex differences. Uh, Because when I was going through university and was told that all the stuff that we were applying, because I was on the rowing team, all the coaching principles, all the recovery principles, all the training principles was all based on male data. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? Like, surely, you know, that women are different, Um, but got the pushback where people were like, well, we don't know enough about men. Why do we want to study women? Or women are just the same as men, but it's been that being my bonnet the whole way through my academic and um, athletic career, that this isn't true. So it's been the push to understand women, do the research on um, women, get information out there so that we can start to have more of an equal playing field. And so the women who put in all the hard work also get the best performance potential out of their work.
0: That's kind of like a daunting thing to take on though for yourself is if you're starting with basically no information on female physiology and endurance sports, I guess, like what was the first step that you took to like get into that field?
1: I always ask questions why. So when people were, uh, I think one of the, I think I even talked about in my TED talk, like the really iconic moment was when I was like a, a junior in undergrad, Purdue, and we were doing a metabolism lab and I was running on the treadmill for 2 hours with just water one day and then running on a treadmill with carbohydrate on another day and then doing another run on a carbohydrate run on another day so it was like weeks a week in between and you had to standardize and when we're looking at the results it's like my results on one of the trials was completely different than what the guys were and it was me and three guys and theirs were pretty consistent with regards to like how their body used carbohydrate so then It was, oh, Stace, you didn't standardize enough. You didn't do all these things that you were supposed to do. I was like, no, no, I did. And like, trust me, coming from a military family, when you're told what to do, you do it. And so I was like really confused. And so I started digging into it and I was like, oh, I got it. Menstrual cycle must be has to do something with that. And when I asked those questions, no one could give me the answer. So I was like, well, obviously, I know I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything right. So why are you throwing my results out? So as I started digging more and more, then I went to my master's degree in overtraining in female runners and saw all these other differences between what the literature was showing for men. So just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it wasn't till, I don't know, maybe about four or five years ago where we all of a sudden had this big platform where you could really make a global impact. Um, so yeah, conversations are starting to turn, but it's been a long road.
0: Yeah. That's wild because I was in college from 2014 to 2018. And even back then, like we never talked about, you know, your menstrual cycle or how to train like specifically in terms of like women's hormones or anything. And it was, I I, like just watched your Ted talk over again. And it's just funny because people just like brush it under the rug. Like it's just never talked about or people missing their periods was never talked about. Um, and I was at like, Oregon, like the top of the top tier NCAA running program. And it was still brushed under the rug. And it's crazy. Like just now within the last, yeah, five years or so, I feel like the conversations are starting to happen. I guess like, why do you think people are talking about it now?
1: Well, got to understand the cultural context of sport, right? So when we think about what it means to be successful in sport, we see all the masculine qualities of being invincible pretty much. Like you're having power, you're having speed, you're not showing any kind of fallibility. But when a menstrual cycle or the period comes into that conversation, it doesn't fit in those metrics. So historically, women were trying to be like men so that they could be included in sports. So they had to show all of these masculine-like qualities, as well as not having any kind of fallibility. So if you talk about the menstrual cycle or having a period, then culturally people go, oh, you're a delicate flower. You can't do anything at this time point. So people didn't talk about it. And then when we look and see that the acceptable, um, I guess, state of being was to lose your menstrual cycle, which we know is completely unhealthy, but, you know, from a cultural context, it's still in ingrained a little bit that if I lose my period, I must be training hard enough. And so then that became the undercurrent that then there were so many amenorrheic women who were running that it still wasn't a conversation because one had it. But in the past four or five years, it's become more of uh, like we look at some of the role models that are out there in sport and they're like, oh, I didn't do well because I'm on my period or, um, you know, I know I have really bad cramps. So it's becoming more and more in the media. And then the flip side of that is from the academic perspective, we have a few of us that sit in the translational aspect between academia and industry. And so we've been able to translate more into industry of how we should be taking care of our female athletes which then pushes from inside out. So sponsors are now understanding, hey, this is how we take care of our top tier female athletes, as well as the athletes in talking about how they feel. So it's been a cultural shift in the past about five years in conjunction with internal conversations that are being pushed out.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I feel like you've been a huge help in that. Like you've been a big voice in this community. It's much needed, obviously. And it's kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, like it was very normalized for people to not have their periods. And it was almost like a good job if yeah if you lost your period which is so odd because in the long run like you know that it's bad for you like you see people that don't have periods for a long time like they're going to get a stress fracture it's almost yeah I don't know, you know what's gonna happen and coaches like knew it was gonna happen too so that's why it's just odd that it was so normalized and even applauded because I know it makes no sense it just is going to lead to injury and there's not really any other way around it so I don't I really know get it. I don't really get it but it's refreshing now to just see different perspectives like coming out and people just talking and I don't know, talking about having a period being a great thing and being what you need to strive for rather than the opposite, which is kind of what I feel like my generation was. So,
1: Oh yeah. It's been all the way through. Like it's been endemic and it's just now starting to change and it's still not there. I was in a a conference and there was one of the elite running coaches who's like, I know when my, my female athletes are ready to peak because they've lost their periods. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, cause then, you know, they're stressed enough and they're ready to go. And I was like, actually, no, that means they're going to break before they get there. And the whole concept of, you know, that means that there's something inherently wrong, that there's some kind of health scope and endocrine scope. That's amiss. Your athlete is getting ready to break. Just didn't translate. Because it's been so far endemic in specifically running and athletic and um, athletics, you know, track and field and that kind of stuff, where if you lose your period, then boom, you're ready to perform. And it's absolutely not true. So we're still working it. But now that like Red S and low energy availability have made mainstream conversations is becoming more apparent that it's not healthy.
0: Yeah. Honestly, I'm glad you said that, though, because I feel like people don't really know how deep rooted it is. But it's just funny how some elite elite coach is telling that to you and like with such confidence too and it's just I I don't know it's just funny and I feel like people just need to know like how bad it is you know like how badly ingrained into the culture it is so I'm kind of glad that you brought that up but um, okay I kind of want to talk about though like how to create a female or a healthy trajectory for female athletes because you talk about how it needs to start you know at puberty and my me myself like I started puberty probably when I was like 13 I'm kind of a late bloomer when I was 13 I was like five foot two and then by the time I left high school like four years later I was five ten so my body like and I gained 50 pounds so my body had like completely changed um and a lot of female athletes like have a very hard time during this like time period of puberty because your body changes and it's so you feel so different running um so I guess like how This is such a broad question, but how do you like deal with going through that? <laughs> I
1: know, because it's a different age for so many people. You can't yeah. say, oh, when you turn 13, then boom, you're through puberty, because it's very variable. Um, there's a few things that we really need people to understand, parents, coaches, even girls going through it, that... One, it's variable and it is just one point in time. And two, yes, your body's gonna change because your center of gravity lowers because your hips are getting wider, your shoulder girdle widens in order to accommodate for that widening hips, so your biomechanics are off. So we have to relearn how to run. We have to relearn how to jump, how to throw, And in that, we don't want to be lifting heavy loads. We don't want to put a lot of um, stress in the joints because they're still developing. So we do a lot of functional movement. We want to get strong through our body weight and we want to learn how to move well. So we put that as a baseline for so many programs like sport programs. So we can, can have all the women who, regardless of where they are in their puberty, doing the same kind of functional training and skills and drills. And so people are becoming more confident in the way that they move because existing protocols now, it no one pays attention to it. So a girl will be a little bit later through puberty and going from the front of the pack to the back of the pack and going, why am I gaining weight? Why am I so gangly? They either drop out of sport or they do the unfortunate thing of eating less or getting an eating disorder or really trying to train more to catch up. And if we just make that basic education of bodies are changing, we need to learn how to move and we need to learn how to do running drills specific to how our bodies are changing. Then it feeds forward into being able to perform better. And the other factor is if we don't have that education piece, then what they're doing in high school, they'll get so drawn out and sick of it. they then they'll, they'll stop. They won't continue. So it's at that bottom line where we're like, okay, it's another re-education opportunity. And knowing that menstrual cycle will be really irregular with regards to how long and, and bleed patterns until you're 16 or 17, if you start at 13. So also understanding that because there's so many girls who are like, I'm irregular. Their mom's taken to the doctor. The doctor goes, here's an oral contraceptive pill. So then it feeds forward even into more complications. So it really comes down to education. And how are we going to take that education and translate it? We're going to put it into the basic aspect of any kind of program, and that's learning how to move well and be functional and efficient in our movements.
0: I'm curious because, I don't know, even I had this, like it wasn't that drastic um, of like slowing down, I guess. Like when I was 13, I was really good. I was a really good youth athlete. And I definitely, when I was like 14 to 16 years old, as I was growing, I was getting a little bit slower. Um mm-hmm. But I guess for like people during that time period, is there always a light at the end of the tunnel? Or is it for some people like, I don't know, you will just end up being a slower runner. Because for me, like I kind of got over the hump. Like I got, I don't know, I like went through my first round of puberty and then I ended up getting better again. But it like took a while for me to get through that. It took years, I would say. Um, But is it like that for everyone? Like if everyone does it healthfully, um, they can get to the other side of it?
1: Yep. Absolutely. And that's what I mean. It's like one point in time where your body's going through so much change and it's under so much stress that when you start trying to put in training load to get faster, all of your metabolic capacities haven't quite developed either. So we talk about the lactic acid system and we talk about, you know, aerobic system and your top end sprint capacity. All of those things also have to develop. So as you're going through puberty, your body has a little bit of a slowdown because it's trying to accommodate for all these changes as well as getting a better total metabolic system. So you get through that hump and then you start training specifically and everything catches up and then you can start progressing. But it can be a year, it can be two years. So the high school time period, I find really interesting when there's so much competition in sport until you hit your junior or senior year where people start coming into their own. So the earlier days of sport, I find really frustrating from being on the sideline. of seeing these girls struggling when no one's telling them like, these are all the changes that you're going through. And it is a temporary point in time. Don't give up, like work on the functional movement, work on learning how to run efficiently. And then as your metabolic systems start developing as well, that's when you catch up and supersede what you've been doing.
0: I think it just makes it harder now, though, too, because everyone's so good in high school, like the high schoolers are just getting way better. So then the external pressure to go against what your body is doing is even higher. Like, yeah, the external pressure to train more, eat less, you know, when you're starting to get slower, like during those time periods that happens to you. I don't know. I feel like it would just be a lot higher at this point in time, like compared to when I was in high school, which kind of sucks. But it's like, and it sucks too, because then colleges are looking at you. So there's like that added pressure, too. Um, I don't know. That's just like a random thought. I don't There's not much no, there, but
1: it's true. And what we're finding is that it's more competitive in high school because more and more girls and boys are going through puberty earlier. Mm. Like the average age used to be around 11 to 13. And now we're seeing it as early as seven, eight. So we're having girls who are starting their periods when they're eight. And I look at my daughter who just turned 10 and she hasn't. And I was like, I can't imagine having to explain, like, sit down and explain what's going on when you were eight. Cause you were still into fairy books and, you know, all the kind of unicorns and things and still, still a kid, right? Still a baby kid. And now we're seeing that puberty is starting early and girls are getting their periods by eight, nine, 10 years old. So, of course, when they hit high school, they've already gone through it. So there's that subset of girls who are going already through it before they get to the running stance within high school. So that's what's making it even more competitive. So it's, I know it's interesting and not necessarily in a good way either, because when you think about going through puberty at at that young of an age, from a mental standpoint, just not at that capacity. So does that even make sense?
0: Why is that happening? You know?
1: Uh, some of it's, there's so many different hypotheses around it. Some of it is about availability of food. Some of it is about their parents have gone through it earlier. So then it's a genetic set point that's come back down, um, can be a little bit of early childhood obesity or, or a lot of body fat that's put on when they're younger. So then they can aromatize estrogen a lot faster. So then it kicks forward. So there's lots of different ideas around it, but nothing's been pinpointed yet. Interesting.
0: Hmm. I could not imagine getting my period at eight years old.
1: <laughs> no, no, not at all.
0: Brief little intermission here to talk about one of my favorite sponsors ever Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. They're lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you run, all for only $25. Bucks. No slip, no bounce all polarized and all fun. I'm sure if you're you know, around the running world or even endurance sports world, you've seen people rocking gooder sunglasses because they're literally the best. There's a reason why everyone wears them. Some may say they're the best sunglasses ever invented and I would have to agree with them both because of their awesome names like $9 Pour Over and Influencers Pay Double, um, which are kind of iconic names, but then also like just the fit of the sunglasses are amazing for working out. And the fact that they're $25 for polarized sunglasses, where else are you gonna find a deal like that? And they're really good quality. And like I said, they don't slip, they don't bounce. When you're out there working hard on the track, on the trails, on your bike even, they have cycling sunglasses called the Rap Gs love them they're iconic also they just look incredible i'm about to go for a run right now actually a long run and i'm gonna wear my favorite pair of gooders right now they're called the see you at the party richer they're hot pink sunglasses and they just like honestly make me look phenomenal and when i tell you this is the perfect holiday gift oh it truly is like they have so many different patterns you're guaranteed to find one that you love or a friend loves you know and you should honestly just treat yourself to a pair too cuz why not go to gooder.com/coldbrew and get free shipping on your entire order that is free shipping at g o o brew look good run gooder now let's get back into today's episode with Dr. Stacy Sims. Okay. Well, what is like, what are some of the worst, this is maybe a negative way to say, what are some of the worst things that like a girl can do during that hump time period? Like when they start going through puberty For, to like, that affects their trajectory of their running career, like a longevity in the sport.
1: Yeah. Not eat. That's a big thing, right? We can see that there are a lot of girls who are so fragile in this, in this time point, because not only is their body changing and they're putting on body fat and and they don't feel comfortable in their own skin, and then they're slowing down in their sport. So when you're hearing all the media buzz about, you know, well, just do fasting, do intermittent fasting or calorie restriction, then that tends to play in. And so then they don't eat. Or they're like, oh, I'm not hungry. It's too late. And the parents will be after them to eat, but they still won't. And when we look at what's happening, it just creates this, this. A situation where it will create a secondary um, amenorrhea is the best way to say. So you go through puberty and then you stop eating or you're not eating, then it'll kind of put a pause on everything. And then you won't necessarily get your period or you'll have one. And then you're like, ah, and it causes a lot of endocrine dysfunction. So for thinking about endocrine dysfunction that feeds forward to stress fractures, stress reactions. Um, gastrointestinal problems can have some heart arrhythmias uh, a lot of psychological mood issues and it all comes down to not having enough food and when we're looking at well how do we keep progressing we need to eat and have a precedence on protein so we know that even if you're not exercising but you have a higher protein intake that you end up putting on more lean mass and keeping body fat down low. So it's, again, the education. We're fueling for what we're doing because women do better in a fed state. So that means having a little bit of food before training, definitely recovering after, making sure you're getting most of your food in and around the stress points of the day. So that you have energy to go through school, you have energy to train well. Because the goal of training is actually to create an adaptive stress, right? You don't go to training to compete; you go to training to do a certain session to then get fitter. But if you're not fueling or or giving your body food for that session, you're not going to get those adaptive changes. You're just going to create a greater stress on the body, and it's going to break down muscle tissue and cause an endocrine system disruption. So you're immune system is going to take a hit. Your thyroid is going to take a hit. You're not going to put on lean mass. Your menstrual cycle isn't going to settle and become normal. And it's just going to keep continuing unless you're fueling for what you're doing.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've, I've tried to hammer that like in through a bunch of different, like my platforms, YouTube, this podcast, the best thing that I did in high school was eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I was always known as the person that would eat a lot of food, whatever. I've never had a bone injury out of my entire running career ever in my life. And obviously like I, I've grown so much. My body has changed so much over the years, but I credit my longevity in the sport and being relatively injury free other than like growing pains or whatever, because I ate in high school and I ate whatever I wanted, whatever I wanted, which maybe, you know, I might've had a little bit healthier diet. Like that would have been a little bit better, but again, I didn't really know that much about nutrition back then, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. I feel yeah. like social media has played like a negative role in that almost because of like what you said, where people are seeing like intermittent fasting and just all these, like, I don't know. You're just seeing what everyone else is eating, which is sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. A lot of the time on social media it's bad. Especially and a lot of times that, it's not
1: true, right? Yeah, on social true, media or
0: yeah. people that they follow like aren't runners. So it's not, they're not eating enough, like, or not eating what other people should be eating. Um, I don't know. All of it is just like really interesting because I think social media does help at a certain point. Like people like you putting out good information and everything. Um, but then nice. also it's like, you have the negative side of it. So I feel like I'm just grateful when I grew up that I didn't have that external stuff going on because I was just hungry and I ate whatever I wanted.
1: Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's the one time in your life you can get away with it. Right? That's what yeah. I
0: mean. I was like, yeah. I, yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Cause your body's growing. It needs a shit ton of calories just to grow. And then if you're adding sport and the stress of everything else, you still need more calories. Yeah. So when you start seeing all this misstep of people who aren't eating in their teenage years, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the one time when you really do have the opportunity to eat pretty much what you want and not have to worry so much about body and body recomp with exception to the rule, of course. But When you start getting like a lot of girls will hit 20 and all of a sudden their metabolism changes and they put on weight so that's you know you hear the freshman 15 it's not because necessarily you've gone to college and now you're putting weight on it's because your metabolism changes so you start to slow down and put on a little bit more body fat so then again that's another time period especially if you're at college running where people are like oh i need to stop eating so it's very it's very interesting the lack of education that comes around with why you need to fuel and how you need to eat, especially around training.
0: Yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that because th- I mean, this is all just a topic I relate heavily to just as an athlete myself that's dealt with like menstrual issues. Um, so I actually, you're not, you're not my doctor. So <laughs> I, I don't know yeah. you're not going to know the whole background or whatever, but I, so I like fully went through puberty. I thought, you know, and then I went to college. I've never had a bone injury, was not injury prone, have never had any, any issues at all honestly um but I had didn't get my period until I was 22 years old so I, I went to a bunch of the different gynecologists over the years and like got a bunch of ultrasounds and basically when I was like 18 they told me that my ovaries were prepubescent which is I don't know all of it is just like odd um because I didn't restrict my eating ever and then also I like never had any other issues so I don't really know why that happened so I feel like I'm almost an anomaly in that. Yep. Um, it's interesting though. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't know why, like what would cause that. But after college, I was like pretty burnt out after I left college, um, just with running. And I kind of, like, I knew I had to get my period at some point. Um, and my gynecologist had told me like, once I stop running, give it six months. And if I don't get it, like after taking a six month break, then whatever, go back to her. Um, because I had never taken a break. That was the thing is I had never taken more than like two or three weeks off since I was probably 12 years old. So oh, yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know what my life was like without like the stressor of running. So then like when I was 21, yeah, when I 21, 22, when I left college, I went through like just this insane round of puberty that I it was like almost unexpected. Like I knew I had to get my period, but my body now has changed like so drastically from when I was a competitive runner. Um, but it is just interesting, like you say, that college time period when people like hit that second round of puberty and they have like this instinct that they need to go on a diet or like try to manipulate the way that they look because I definitely had that because I was like oh I already went through puberty I don't need to do it again you know yeah um and I feel like this idea of second puberty is becoming more popular as well especially in girls like when you get 20 something years old but what happened what's different in like I guess this age of puberty compared to like when you're normal people are like thirteen.
1: So when you're looking at what normal puberty is, when you're like 13, this is where you're having a really large expression of estrogen. So this is their first epigenetic change where we see changes in bone length, bone strength. We look at uh, where body fat is accumulating. We have the signal to have a widening of the hips and it's all because now we have a signal to actually do something with the uterus to like create an environment for reproduction. And you have that, but you also have the continuous growing as going from a little baby all the way up to adult. So you still have this specificity of growing things like brain tissue and lengths of all your skeletal system. You have an increase in heart size, increase in blood volume. So all the things that come with natural growing. When you hit 20, you don't have that part yet. I mean, you're done with that growth part but you still have another upsurge of estrogen expression. So this is where, again, you'll see metabolism starts to come down a little bit because you don't have all the growth to be an adult going on. And then you have an extra boost of estrogen that then causes another set of of changes. So we'll see some girls will be like an A cup all through high school. And then when they hit like 2021, all of a sudden they're a C or D cup. And they're like, whoa, what happened?
0: Right? That's literally me now. I was like and, a B in college and now I'm a D.
1: Yeah. And it's because you have this secondary expression and your body's like, oh my gosh, okay. Yeah, I stopped growing, but I still have a few things left to do. And again, a lot of people attribute it to, oh, well, now that you're, you're at college and you're eating differently, you're eating more, then this is why you're putting weight on. But it's not about that. It's about another epigenetic exposure of estrogen and your ratios start to change. But once you hit that 20, 21 mark, your ratio of estrogen progesterone with regular cycling should relatively stay constant until you get into your mid to late thirties.
0: So then what should you do during that time period when maybe, yeah, again, you're putting on a little bit more, you're just becoming like more of a woman, um, with like training, like what do you do? Cause a lot of people are in college during this time, so they can't necessarily like tell their coaches, Oh, Hey, I'm going through my second round of puberty. So.
1: Right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Um, that have it actually happened to me, too, when I was on the rowing team, like I went away one summer and I came back and all the guys like, oh, my God, you grew boobs over the summer. And I was like, yeah, thanks for noticing. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> um, but from a training perspective, this is where you want to put in more resistance training and really focus on building that lean mass and again, putting in the protein, because if you're building more lean mass and putting in protein, then your body can metabolize your sex hormones better. Um and then if you're still having issues, then you can try something like DIM. which is a supplement that is um, just the active ingredient from all your broccoli and cauliflower, but it helps with estrogen metabolism by reducing the effectiveness of estrogen where you don't want it to be. So it's a way of moderating how estrogen is affecting your body in a good way, not in a bad way.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm just like intrigued. I mean, I feel like I'm in this weird time period right now where I was really burnt out for a while. And then now I'm like getting back into running again, but I'm just a lot slower and running feels it's almost to a T exactly like what high school was, where it's like running just feels so crazy different than it used to. Um, So it makes me a little afraid. I'm just like, will I ever be good again? But then I also can feel it that I like do have I could be good again. I just need to be consistent and it's the same sort of thing of like, I need to be patient through this time period because my body's like still changing just because I feel like I'm just such a late bloomer. Um, I don't know. And I'm like 26, which is crazy that I'm still like dealing with these changes, but I am. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just like perseverance through this time period and being patient and doing, yeah, like adding in resistance training and just being smart about it. Um, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard to deal with it mentally. Like how?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. When
0: it comes to, like, dealing with, like, coaches, what do you recommend, like, how do you bring up any of these topics at all?
1: Um. So because we want to look at it as, like, a health scope, right? And when coaches encounter their athletes every afternoon for practice, most of the time there's a general check, like, who's injured, who's stressed, you know, what's going on? And then we start to put in questions about menstrual cycle or other health factors, and it becomes just a normalization. So then if you're an athlete and you're are getting that check and then something's just a little bit amiss, then that's the time where you can be like, "Hey, yeah, there's something going on." And if the coach is like, "What's going on? Tell me." Then sure, have that conversation, but if there's a little bit of a discrepancy, at least it's awareness to the coach that there's something going on. And so you're not being judged because the whole thing is about taking away that judgment. So if you're having just that baseline check of of check-in and, and the baseline health aspect and the menstrual cycle and women's health issues are part of that just initial check-in, then if there's just that run amiss, miss, then that awareness is there instead of everything being hidden. Um, we often look at things like using a traffic light system. So if you're coming into a practice and you're like, I'm a red today, or I'm a green today, or I'm an orange today, if you're red, what's going on? Are you injured Poor sleep? um, you're a few days out from your period, or it's a day you usually feel flat, or you're having some health issues, the coach is aware. It doesn't necessarily have to ask specifics about it, but just knows that there's something going on with my athlete and I can dig in or just be aware so that I'm not making judgment calls or I can help by encouraging or asking questions.
0: Yeah. There's a, I like do like listener questions for this episode and, For the coach, like from the coaches' aspect, what should coaches do, like in this scenario, like how, especially as like male coaches, how should they approach topics like these? Because it's something that I feel like a lot of male coaches will just not disregard because they don't know anything about it. So how should they go about talking to their athletes?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of the conversations, like if you're with your female teammates, you know, we always have conversations and talk about, oh, my period's coming or this is happening or that is happening. So grassroots wise, it's already in that context. Right. So if the coach comes in and is open to it and not embarrassed about it, it just becomes natural conversation for coaches who are um, like coaching young 13 or 14 year old girls, you know, like right at the onset of puberty where it's not that comfortable Then this is where we really work on what are we doing from a traffic light or what are we doing for a health check-in? So the coach is aware that there are some things going on, can maybe pinpoint to the parents, they might want to have a conversation with their kid or, you know, ask the parents is okay if I have a conversation with your child, Um, just to bring the parents into the loop as well. So then kids aren't by themselves. So it is about the education standpoint where if we normalize the conversation about all these health health issues like heavy menstrual bleeding there's so many women with heavy menstrual bleeding and that goes unknown right so the first few days of their period they're completely down for the count with cramps and they might have to go home from school but the coach if they're not aware what heavy menstrual bleeding is might be like oh suck it up but we don't want that attitude we want the education same thing with like pcos or endometriosis so if we make these conversations normalized, then the coach isn't embarrassed and there isn't a stigma Around it. So then that opens up those conversations.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, it's so important for those high school years just to normalize the conversation about it and start having those conversations. I mean, I can see how, especially, I don't know, being like a male coach, how it would be difficult to approach these topics. But I like what you said, like going and maybe talking to the parents or, I don't know, just opening up the conversation is just so important. I feel like, again, it wasn't something that was talked about on my team at all in high school at all, ever. I don't think it was brought up once.
1: Nope. Nope, No, never.
0: Yeah, but I don't, everyone on my high school team was generally healthy, but I think it's still, I mean, it would have been a very good thing to talk about, probably. Um, yeah. Another little intermission here to talk about another one of my go-to products that I use literally every day, who is sponsoring today's episode, Koros. Like I said, I'm about to go for my long run right now, and I've already got my Coros Pace 2 GPS Premium Sport Watch on my wrist. I have the blue sapphire one on. We're rocking with the blue colorway today. I love this GPS watch. First of all, really lightweight. I never feel it on my wrist when I'm running, which is the best thing that you can ask for for a watch. It looks really classy. It's just very well put together, very good quality, and, you know, more than anything else, it's super easy to use. I'm not a tech wizard, and you know, I like simple and The Koro's Pace 2, it's a super beginner-friendly watch, which is incredible because that's what I need, to be honest. All you have to do is press two buttons and then you're off and running, and both the watch and the app are super easy to use. So you can sync from the watch to the app and Strava automatically. You don't even need to think twice about it. I talk about it in basically every episode, but I just need to hammer home like how good the battery life is on this watch, you guys. I've tried so many GPS watches in my life, and I don't know how they do it, but the Pace 2 battery, is insane i can go days 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 wearing it all day long without charging it and you know i'm a little bit forgetful there's no Worse feeling than when you're about to go for a long run. You, like, finally have the motivation to get out the door. You go to put on your watch and it's out of battery. Yeah, that rarely ever happens with a Pace 2 because the battery life is insane. (laughs) Also, talk about another perfect holiday gift. The Koros Pace 2. Guaranteed, whoever you gift this to is gonna love it. And listeners of this podcast, we got a good deal for you. Go to koros.com and use code COLDBREW for a free accessory with a watch purchase. Just add your accessory, like a band, a charger, or a piece of apparel to the cart before checking out and apply the code cold brew and you get that accessory for free linked in the show notes as per usual 10 out of 10 recommend it's an amazing watch now let's get back into today's episode with dr Stacy at what age should someone be concerned if they haven't started their period
1: uh, we say around 16 if someone hasn't started their period by around 16 this is when they want to go check and see well what's going on is there something wrong with the pituitary is there something wrong with the ovaries or is it a lack of 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 energy intake um, because that primary amenorrhea where you actually don't start your period can be a bit of a concern because that means that, yeah, there's an endocrine misstep. Um, But note that when you do start in high school, like if you're 13 or 14, it could be you only have four periods a year Right. Or it could be that you have one every six months because everything's so irregular. And if you haven't started by the time you're 16, you definitely need to get checked out. But most of the time people won't fall into a regular pattern until they're 17 or 18.
0: I feel like the hardest thing about this is that there's no set structure. So then it's Mm -mm. and everyone's so individual that that's what makes a lot of this difficult because. Absolutely. There's nothing to follow. There's no instructions.
1: And no one talks about what's normal.
0: Yeah. Right. So we say,
1: oh, a menstrual cycle is 28 days, but it's not like that's just two week, two week is a division factor, but most women are fall between 21 and 40 days. And it's a follicular phase or the low hormone phase that lengthens because that's when the body's really resilient to stress and is trying to make it so that when ovulation occurs, there's a higher prevalence and higher chance of that egg being fertilized and, and surviving. So when we're looking at menstrual cycle changes, if the body's under a lot of stress, then that follicular phase is going to lengthen because it's taking a longer period of time for that body to build up resilience to actually create a situation where ovulation can occur and the chance of having fertilization is more successful. And then we also talk about, well, what does a normal bleed pattern look like? No one talks about that. I had some guys come up and go, oh, I thought women just bled for seven days and then boom, they're done. And I was like, mm, yeah, no,
0: <laughs> let me tell
1: you, <clears throat> it is very different. And it also depends on how stressed they are. It could be like you have a bleed pattern or two heavy days, a light day, and then another heavy day, and then a couple of days of spotting, and then you bleed again, or maybe you just bleed for three days and then spotting, or maybe you have spotting and then you bleed. It's so arbitrary and different. And you know, if it goes longer than seven days, then there's something we need to check out. But if it's one or two days, then yeah, that's okay. That's normal, right? So we don't talk about bleed pattern. And this is why another thing like heavy menstrual bleeding is never really discussed, even though over 40% of recreational athletes have it. And it's even higher in elite athletes, because, you know, the body's under a lot of stress. And then you have Boom, this inflammation factor, massive inflammatory responses above and beyond what normal training inflammation is. And then you have this really severe cramping and and tissue sloth off that causes the cramping where people can't get out of bed. And that's not normal. So there's ways of getting help for that. But that's not a general conversation either because people are like, oh yeah, here's my menstrual cycle. It's X days long, but no one talks about the nuances within it.
0: I'm curious, just from your perspective, I thought a lot about this, like, do you think inherently running is good for females and like their hormones?
1: Yeah, well, yes and no. So if we're talking about like, y- you have the bell curve, right? And you have the extremes on either end and sedentary is not good and super extreme where you're so into like ultra running or competitive running that you're taking a misstep or you're not quite looking after nutrition. That's not good either. But within the bell curve, we know that that high intensity exercise, the competitive drive, all of those things feed forward to better hormonal control. So, yeah, running is good when it is matched with appropriate recovery and nutrition.
0: It's just so it's so hard because it's so individual for every person. And there's just like so many variables that you have to deal with, um, especially as a female athlete, that it just makes it it's almost overwhelming like to keep, like just to keep healthy. And, um, especially during like the puberty time period, just to do everything right. That I feel like I'm almost everyone's bound to make a mistake. But that's okay. Yeah. but that's okay. Saying, that's like, yeah. That's yeah. like what running is, is right. It's not so a straight s- line.
1: No, we say it's a 80, uh, 20 rule. 80% of the time you're really on it. And the other 20%, you make mistakes, you learn from it, nutrition, training, sleep, all of those things, because No one's perfect when they start. And we also know that people who are super elite in high school might not necessarily be successful at university. And we see the trajectory. A lot of people who are elite runners really don't come into their own until their late 20s, early 30s. So it's what you're doing in high school is a learning process. And even though it sounds really complex and overwhelming, if you are tracking yourself and understanding your own patterns, then you can dial in for yourself. And that is enough understanding how you respond, how your hormones make you respond to sleep, to training, to nutrition, to stress, that is enough. You don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. As long as you know yourself and how your body responds, then that's, that's, all, that's all we can all ask for.
0: Oh, I wish it was that easy, <laughs> that easy yeah. to not get like... For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bombarded by... You know, Wrapped up
1: in all, all the other stuff, Yeah, yeah.
0: What, okay. If someone goes through secondary amenorrhea, what should be their first thing that they go do?
1: Go see an endocrinologist.
0: Just to so, see what's going on with the hormones?
1: Yeah. Because if it is most of the time when we have secondary amenorrhea, it's because our luteinizing hormone pulse has stopped having its daily flux. So if we don't have luteinizing hormone, then we don't have ovulation. If we don't have ovulation, then we don't have that pro- progression of progesterone and an upsurge of estrogen. So pretty much our menstrual cycle stops. The reason why luteinizing hormone pulse dies is because we don't have enough energy coming in. And if we are looking at luteinizing hormone with estrogen from a blood test standpoint, we can see, is it luteinizing hormone and a lack of energy coming in or is there something else going on? So if you go see an endocrinologist, they can start to kind of tease that out. And then you can take steps and actions to fix it. So if it is no luteinizing hormone pulse, we know that it's an energy deficit, then the first thing we do is drop volume completely. We look at doing uh, you know, four weeks of strength training and a little bit of intensity um, and fueling really well because strength training is not fuel depleting. And we also know that you can really maintain optimal body composition if you are doing resistance training And fueling appropriately, and you can get your luteinizing hormone pulse back and then ovulation back. If it is something that has to do with the pituitary, then the endocrinologist will see that, and then you can take medical steps to correct it. So, the first port of call is really seeing a specialist to figure out is it something that is organ related, or is it something related to not enough energy?
0: Okay, so when doctors prescribe people birth control, to help regulate their menstrual cycle, a lot of the time, I feel like that's what happens when people go through like secondary menorrhea, or they haven't gotten their period yet at all. What, how does that have the effect on the body? Like, is that doing the same thing? Or not at all? Yeah,
1: I I get so frustrated when that's the answer. Because when you're taking an oral contraceptive pill, the whole goal of an oral contraceptive pill is to down regulate your natural cycle, like to pretty much cause an ovarian failure effect where your body's not producing its own estrogen progesterone. So if you're having irregular cycles or you're amenorrhea and someone gives you an oral contraceptive pill, that's not fixing the problem. It's masking it. It's giving synthetic hormones to create this cycle that's not true. And the bleed on an oral contraceptive pill is not a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed. So that means that now these hormones aren't there. So you're going to sloth off, but it's not the same endometrial lining as it would be as if it was your own natural hormones. Um, the thing with oral contraceptive pills too is it masks if you're in the early low energy availability state. And it also, we're seeing more and more evidence to show that it can impede training potential because it has a high oxidative and inflammatory aspect on the body. So then it reduces adaptations. So when we're looking at young Athletes who are put on oral contraceptive pills to, quote, fix the menstrual cycle, it's masking things and can potentially make things worse. So instead of getting an oral contraceptive pill, I wish that physicians would dig in a little bit more. And then have better guidance on, okay, well, we need to go refer you to a sports dietitian to really dig in. Or maybe we need to refer you to an endocrinologist to see, is it something that's going on with pituitary or is it something that is energy related, but let's have a look at what's going on with the hormones. Um, So yeah, that's, that's the one bugbear that I have that's still so commonplace especially when parents are worried about their kids. And they think the best practice to go to the physician. The physician doesn't know anything about low energy availability or red S. And so their automatic response is, here's an oral contraceptive pill.
0: So does taking like the, the oral contraceptive, does that prevent bone injuries? Or is it just inevitable that it's going to happen because of the low energy?
1: It does not do anything for bone. We look at the estrogen component in oral contraceptive pill and it does not do anything for bone health. So when people are having stress reactions and they're like, oh, take the OC to help, it doesn't, it can make things worse. The only thing that oral contraceptive pill can do is help with anemia because it reduces the severity of bleeding. Um, But with regards to all other kind of health issues with bone menstrual cycle irregularity, it doesn't do anything.
0: That's crazy. Because again, that's like something that's definitely pushed. All the time. All the time. Yeah. That's wild. The only,
1: the only, um, I guess, exogenous hormone or external hormone, um, format that can help with bone mineral density is an estradiol patch because the micronized estrogen that's in that patch format is very similar to the estrogen that your body produces so then it is assimilated and can help with bone but when you're taking an oral contraceptive pill it's not the same format and it's not metabolized the same so the bioavailability of that estrogen might be 25% as opposed to something like the patch that's assimilated right directly into the system where you're getting you know a good 80 to 90% bioavailability
0: is the patch birth control as well or is that something else
1: uh it's not Okay. It can be if you use it in conjunction with some other things, okay. but just the patch itself is not.
0: What do you think is the best birth control for athletes then? The not IUD.
1: Like the actual... <laughs> what What
0: would you say?
1: The IUD. Okay. Yeah, an IUD. And the reason why I say that it's fit and forget. And so you can put it in for five years. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, a lot of women's periods stop but it's not because they've had a down regulation of their ovarian hormones. It's because the uterine lining becomes so thin that autophagy can take care of it. So you don't actually have a bleed pattern, but you can still track your cycle through basal body temperature. Cause after about eight months of insertion with a progestin only IUD, you ovulate again with a copper IUD, you never stop ovulating. So you can definitely track your cycle. Um, if that's a bit daunting because it is, a small, you know, device that's inserted. You can use something like the Depot shot that can also be a very effective birth control and it doesn't have as systemic, um, I guess, complications as oral contraceptive pill, the implant, but I don't know if the implant's still in the States. I think they might've taken it off the market, but I'm not sure. Um, but I always say, you know what, if you, if you need birth control, for birth control reasons, then IUD. Okay. If you are looking that you need some kind of birth control because of health aspects. And so you need that estrogen component. That's when we start looking at the oral contraceptive pill.
0: Okay. Yeah. A lot of people ask me that question all the time for people like you, or I've had other hor- like hormone experts on. So I'm always intrigued to see what, what the response is, but yeah, I mean, it seems like the IUD is the the way to go. Yeah, way to I have go. a lot of
1: I have a lot of my tactical athletes use it, you know, my military women, because if they're on missions, even if they're using oral contraceptive pill, they still have to take the pill every day. If yeah. they don't, they have breakthrough bleeding. So that's not effective. They don't want to be naturally cycling because if they're on a mission and their period comes, it's the same thing. But with an IUD, it's a fit and forget, and then they're good to go. They don't have to remember to take a pill. They most likely don't bleed. So it's very, very effective because they also can keep track of bone health, of menstrual cycle health. And so they have the opportunity to maintain endocrine function and track it, but then they don't have to worry about their period coming when they're on mission.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And A lot of my like competitive elite runner friends also use the IUD just again, maybe just out of convenience. I don't know.
1: And traveling too, right? Because if you're traveling from time zone to time zone and one of the requirements of an oral contraceptive pill is you have to take it within the hour every day, like within the same hour, every day with time zones, it's really confusing. So then you could end up a few days before your race and Oh my gosh, breakthrough bleeding. What's going on?
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I don't want to keep you for too long, but I have some listener questions that we can go through really quick. Just, um, Everyone just always has a lot of good questions. So, yeah. Um, how to how to uh, come back from overtraining? Do you have any tips? So, overtraining
1: is interesting because is it like true overtraining where you're fully into the red hole or is it that overreached state where it's very similar to low energy availability? So, I always take people in the same vein and go, "Okay, what we need to do is we need to drop volume." We need to focus on strength training. We need to get protein up and we need to minimize the amount of depletion that you have from a fuel standpoint. So if we're looking at building strength up, fueling appropriately, this also helps with sleep, which then feeds forward to reparation, which then feeds forward to getting better um, total body recovery. And this can help pull you out of overtraining.
0: What's the best aspect of recovery, do you think? Do you think it's sleep or eating or what's...
1: Sleep, definitely. We can't undereat because if you undereat, then you get woken up at night through hypoglycemic effects. So you definitely have to eat appropriately. And if you're still hesitant about calorie intake, we um, really recommend taking that uh, protein drink right before bed, like within 30 minutes, preferably casein because it's a slow release. So then you don't get hypoglycemic responses during the night. So you can actually sleep well and have really good sleep architecture as well as have, have a boost of amino acids that helps with reparation.
0: Do you believe in race weight? No. Why not?
1: I don't because that becomes something that's on the scale. I believe in power to weight when the fact that you know, you're know you're producing a certain amount of power and performing really well. And then maybe that's the weight that you want to be on. But we have weight fluctuations throughout everything. So, you know, I want all my athletes to start the season heavier so that as they get more intense and travel, then as they start to lose weight through that, they don't get stress reactions, they don't get sick, they don't get injured, because it's the goal of keeping people uninjured and healthy. So if we start a little bit heavier and then we can afford to lose a little bit of weight. But if we're always aiming for race weight and starting a season at our supposed race weight, that's how we perpetuate injury, illness, Overtraining, burnout. And so when we think about race weight on the scale, it's not an appropriate metric. We have to look at performance.
0: I saw many people's, uh, maybe not running careers, at least seasons, a lot of seasons ended by the focus on race weight. So- Yes. Because again, it's like people don't dive into those topics. Like a lot of college coaches, I mean, and just the college running scene is so quick moving that it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you gotta get ready for cross country, then indoor, then outdoor. It's like, there's no time to build- into no. anything other than the summer, maybe. but again, that's yeah. not it's not talked about. It's like by the time you get to campus, it's like, okay, are you at your race weight or no? And if not, hurry up because we're about to race, right? Like yeah. this weekend. So, yeah,
1: now, yep. so I always look it's like those people are winning early season, Let's see how they're doing at the end of the season because yeah. if they're race weight and winning at the beginning of the season, Somewhere along the line, they're going to get injured and they're probably not going to be there when it counts when we're looking at regionals
0: and nationals. Yeah, exactly. Um, Racing on your period, like, do you have any ways to help, I don't know, people that have bad PMS symptoms?
1: Uh, Yeah, so it's all an inflammatory response. So if we look at um, kind of trying to reduce that inflammatory response in the times leading up to your period. We look at supporting with magnesium and zinc, because your body goes through a lot of that building tissue and immunity. Um, And then omega-3 fatty acids, because that helps block some of the inflammatory prostaglandins. And then a baby aspirin, because that is an irreversible non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which blocks COX-1 and 2, which means you don't get a significant inflammatory response. So you take that about seven days before your period starts, reduces it so that when your period starts, it's not as heavy bleeding or as bad cramping. If you do need to take a NASED, then you switch to ibuprofen because aspirin can thin the blood and create heavier bleeding.
0: You are just a well of advice. I wish I could just have you like on the phone whenever I like need some advice dealing with any like hormonal issues. I feel like just more people need to, I don't know, this information.
1: You have my email, so, you know, you can just stay. <laughs> yeah. Hell. Um yeah.
0: Okay. The last question I have is if you give like one piece of advice to, I don't know, a younger generation, maybe those people going through puberty or 18 to 24 year olds, like what would it be?
1: So I'm always going to say your period is an organic aid. And we think about if we're training according to the way our hormones affect us, then that gives us a better training adaptation and a better training load. So then that feeds forward to better performance. But the flip side is don't let any of the things that occur during a menstrual cycle feed into your brain that you're gonna have a bad performance. Because we know that there there's so many other things that can give you the kudos to have the best PR day at any point in your cycle. So what we do is we train according to our hormones, but then we race according to our mental acuity of I'm gonna nail this.
0: That's awesome, yeah. I feel like your uh, your book Roar 2 really helps, I don't know, talk like it's just a very uh, deep dive into like what we've talked about today. So I always like recommend it to people cuz I feel like it's very helpful for in okay. terms of like specific nutrition and training around your cycle.
1: And that book came out 2016 and we are right now doing a second edition. So the Ooh. new one will be out March, April timeframe. And so we've changed, well, not changed, we've updated a lot of it. So we've put in a lot of stuff about menstrual cycle and hormone tracking and more biohacking stuff, more stuff about the gut, training specificity. So yep, science evolved. So we've evolved the book.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to read. I will definitely be like pre-ordering that. Awesome. It
1: yeah. doesn't mean the old book is is wrong. It just yeah. means that we've updated a lot of the the science that evolves.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, where else can people follow you, you know, keep track of your stuff?
1: So our website, Dr. Stacy Sims um, says so DR Stacy Sims uh, has all of the insight of, you can sign up for our newsletter. So it's a free newsletter and we have little micro learning courses. So if you want to take a deep dive on menstrual cycle tracking or protein supplementation or iron, you can get those. And then we have our big courses and then it has a list of all the things that I'm doing. But if you're like, nah, that's too much, then just go to Instagram and follow me on Insta. Awesome. Well, thank way. you. For ta-
0: yeah. Thanks for taking the time to deal, like cover all these topics. I feel like it's very helpful to yeah. this generation, yeah. my generation. I appreciate you're it. You're welcome. No <laughs> problem. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Commas Over Cold Brew. I hope you enjoyed it such a good conversation. Like I said, like multiple times in this episode, Dr. Stacey Sims is literally a well of information. If you haven't listened to her TED talk, it is so helpful. And also reading her book Roar really helped me learn more about my body as a female endurance athlete. So I recommend those two things for sure. And go give her a follow. Follow us too on Instagram at combos over cold brew pod. If you want to be up to date on the latest episodes and thank you all so much for listening. I will catch you all next week. Peace out fellas.